Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends. This begins the first of many episodes that we will be broadcasting each week. We have titled the series Memories of a Great Airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. 
stories by former Eastern people and friends of this former airline. Your storytellers will be reading stories found in the many publications, the Eastern publications, from 1927 until today, as we receive recall memories of those sending us their stories to be told on the air. The radio show is part of the Eastern Airline Radio Show and the Airline Radio Talk Show, which is done each Saturday at 1 p.m. The same listening tune-in is still blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. And as you would listen to the talk show heard on Saturday, except the new show will be broadcast on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No need to call in as it is pre-recorded, which is what we call podcasting, and usually runs about an hour per each episode. If you miss the broadcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you can always listen at your convenience by clicking on the episode number. Mr. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be the initial storytellers, but Others will be joining the show as we continue to go on air. Harry was a former Eastern employee in the pilot scheduling department. Neil was a pilot based in Atlanta. The show was created to fill in the gap of Eastern Airlines memories that the airline radio talk show does not broadcast to the extent it did for the past 11 years. Highlights of the show will be sent out each week via Facebook, on the Internet. You can also find the content in the archive with a description of each broadcast. In addition to these great stories and memories, we will insert the Eastern TV and radio ads from the 40s to the very last commercial run by Eastern. We hope you enjoy both the stories and Eastern commercials. Now, let's start the show with this first story as read by Harry Lindquist. Harry? Fry suggested they try to break the transcontinental speed record with the new Douglas DC-1. Before a crowd of 15,000 people, at 8.56 a.m., the DC-1 left the runway. It covered the 1,574 miles with numerous refueling stops and landed at Newark, New Jersey, 13 hours, 4 minutes, and 20 seconds later thus setting the speed record for transport aircraft. The feat was heralded in the country's newspapers. Roosevelt reacted to the outrage of the public at the death of 10 Army pilots by March 31, 1934, and directed Farley to invite new temporary airmail contracts to private carriers. The Airmail Act of June 12, 1934, changed civil aviation by forcing the separation of airlines from aircraft manufacturers reopened competitive bidding and specified that no carrier that had participated in the Spoils Conference of 1930 could bid for airmail routes. The act also transferred aviation responsibilities to other departments. The Post Office Department retained the authority to award airmail contracts. The Interstate Commerce Commission was tasked with setting the airmail rates and the Bureau of Air Commerce would monitor route and equipment needs. Farley knew the mail service could not be handled unless the large carriers were allowed to bid. 
He therefore allowed the carriers to simply change their name. EAT became Eastern Airlines. TWA added Inc. American Airways became American Airlines and United Aircraft and Transport became United Airlines. Eastern had been hurt before the resumption of mail service. The regular daily mail route mileage of 11,000 had been scaled down to 6,000 with only seven cities retaining regular service. New York, Washington, Richmond, Greensboro, Atlanta, Jacksonville, and Miami. There were only flag stops, unscheduled stops, at cities like Philadelphia, Baltimore, Charlotte, Macon, Florence, Charleston, Savannah, Vero Beach, and Daytona Beach. The stewardess department was dropped and the payroll went from 534 to 287 employees in one month. Eastern was losing $250,000 per month. There was some growth in 1934 with new routes between Chicago and Atlanta and Atlanta and New Orleans. The first of nine DC-2s that Eastern had ordered went into service. On November 13th, Rickenbacker flew the inaugural 10-hour Florida Flower DCT flight of the New York to Miami route. Beach was tired of the Eastern losses, even as the new CAM routes were awarded. In late December, Breach met with Rickenbacker and asked him, Eddie, do you want to run the airline? Rickenbacker responded, yeah, but on one condition. I'll tell it to you, and I'll tell it to the board of directors. Eastern's being propped up by government subsidy. I think it can stand on its own two feet. If it continues to live on taxpayers' money, I don't want the job, because I'll tell you right here and now, Ernie, I'm going to pledge all my efforts and energies to making it self-sufficient. Not surprisingly, on January the 1st, 1935, Edward V. Rickenbacker was named General Manager of Eastern Airlines. The forced resignation of EAL President Thomas A. Doe earlier, based on a provision of the Air Mail Act of 1934, was a blessing and allowed for a major reorganization of management. Rickenbacker asserted that EAL was in bad shape and getting worse with one and a half million loss in 1934. In fact, the actual loss was over $709,000. EAT had never made a profit on passenger service since its inception in 1930. Rickenbacker took immediate steps to remove Eastern forward. He fired 19 station managers, demoted Charles W. France to operations manager, and named Paul Bretain from TWA's assistant general manager and general traffic manager. He refused to hire back the female services, and for a while to save money, he assigned cabin service to the co-pilots. A year later, Rickenbacker backed off some and hired 40 male flight stewards who wore uniforms of white double-breasted jackets with red piping with dark blue pants. He explained that Mel Stewart's had superior physical strength to handle any emergency. He had been most frustrated with spending $1,000 to train, train female stewardesses to have many quit and get married six months later. In July of 1935, Rickenbacker moved all but some routine maintenance operations from the 36th Street Airport in New York to Miami. This made Miami Eastern's second corporate headquarters location with the largest system concentration of staff, including 360 employees and 30 pilots. The facility also housed a print shop that produced all the company's tickets and forms and a 3-watt radio station, WEEM. At Coral Gables, Eastern had an aeromedical center where physical exams were taken and health-related experiments were conducted. Rickenbacker made more changes and ordered five more DC-2s that brought the total DC-2 fleet to 14. 
He began phasing out the older aircraft inventory, and by the end of 1935, Eastern had sold off every Condor, Kingbird, Stinson, and Melwing. For the low-density routes, Rickenbacker added five new twin-engine, 10-passenger, all-metal L-10 Lockheed Electras. On October 16, 1935, Captain J. Shelley Charles flew the last Eastern Pitcairn Melwing airmail flight from Chicago up to Atlanta. It was the last open cockpit flight carrying U.S. mail. One of Rickenbacker's major focuses was on achieving maximum fleet utilization. If the planes were in the air, money was being made. He wanted more passenger revenue without incurring significant cost. In May 1935, he scheduled 15 round trips per day between New York City and Washington, advertised as the most frequent service possible between any two cities in the world. More DC-2 service was added. Service between New York and Miami was increased, an eight-hour flight from New York to New Orleans was added, and a new nine-hour flight between Chicago and Miami was initiated. The public response to Eastern's new routes and increased frequencies was incredible. By the end of 1935, Eastern's 3,143-mile system carried 7,000 passengers a month, leaving Eastern with a profit of $38,000 versus the $709,000 loss of 1934. Rickenbacker was making significant progress in short order. The DC-2 was indeed a revolutionary aircraft with most of its features designed to save money. It had two fuel tanks, one for high-octane gas for takeoffs and a second tank for cheaper, lower-octane gas for cruising at altitude. It had streamlined engine cowlings and baffles between cylinders for better heat dissipation. The variable pitch propellers allowed for adjustments between climbing and cruising for savings. With more range, it was the most efficient and economical airline available. The DC-2 did have some issues. Though advertised as being a 200-mile-per-hour transport, it could not achieve that speed without a healthy tailwind. It also had an uncompromising landing gear. If a pilot did not get, set the gear firmly on the runway while landing, it would bounce. It was even difficult to taxi, tending to chase its own tail on the ground and in crosswinds. Perhaps the most irritating problem was the tendency for the windshield to leak. Eastern DC-2 flights crews started wearing raincoats in the cockpit to stay dry. Other irritants included a noisy steam heating system, early front landing gear collapses, and the inhuman physical exertion required in raising the landing gear after takeoff. As a result of Rickenbacker's Physical management and the low maintenance cost of the DC-2 in 1935, Eastern carried twice as many passengers and logged 3 million more revenue passenger miles in a fleet with 28 fewer aircraft. In 1936, Rickenbacker hired Charles Force as his chief engineer. He met this large man with a German accent at Fokker Aircraft and admired him for the way he handled spare parts inventory. He had recommended to Rickenbacker that Eastern sell off the Juck fleet and acquire Lockheed Electras until the largest, latest Douglas transports were available. In December of that year, Eastern took delivery of the new DC-3. It was 26 inches wider than the DC-2 with additional space to configure seven rows of three seats, two on one side and one on the other. 
The wings were 10 feet wider with larger fuel tanks that increased the range to 1,200 miles. It had a larger tail section that enhanced flight stability. Another Douglas airplane, the Douglas Sleeper Transport, was ordered by Eastern and primarily used for night flights. The DST carried 14 passengers incorporating more comfortable and larger bunks than the Condor it replaced. Several key management changes occurred in 1936. Rickenbacker admired the Richmond station manager, Sidney Shannon, for his outstanding performance and promoted him to Eastern Operations Manager. A former film cameraman and general manager of Universal and Fox Studios, Beverly Griffith, became the director of public affairs. Griffith continued to use Brad Walker of Campbell Ewald for advertising. Rickenbacker had used Walker as his press agent in the 1920s. Walker wanted to convince Rickenbacker that Eastern needed a new image. After doing research on various birds, he had his art department come up with an emblematic image of a peregrine falcon, the fastest flying bird in the world. Walker came up with the slogan, The Great Silver Fleet. He presented the falcon image and slogan emblazoned above the window line drawing to Rickenbacker for his response. Captain Eddie looked at it for five minutes and said, Go ahead and do it. To Rickenbacker, Brad Walker was more than an advertising man. He was someone he trusted to tell him what he thought. Rickenbacker would often take Walker along on trips to review operations. On one trip to an airframe manufacturer, Rickenbacker insisted that Walker make some demand on the company. Walker reacted to the request saying, Eddie, I can't tell Douglas or Lockheed that I'm, I'm not with the airline. Rickenbacker responded, You're my man. Don't give me any crap. Walker understood how abrasive his client could be. Later, Walker presented an image to promote air travel into Florida using pretty girls in skimpy bathing suits. Eddie fired back. No broads in bathing suits. Look, Brad, I don't want to flood a mail from rabbis, priests, and ministers. Unquestionably, Captain Eddie believed in advertising and promotion. The first printing of the company newspaper, the Great Silver Fleet News, in September 1936, contained several celebrity photos, including one of First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt on an Eastern flight. The king of promotion for Eastern Airlines was really its own chief pilot, Dick Merrill. On September 2, 1936, Merrill was invited by a Broadway entertainer and the first millionaire singer, Harry Putnam on the Ritz, Richmond, to join him on what would be the first two-way Atlantic crossing. Before the movie tone news camera, Rickenbacker told the crowd, Wishing you, Harry and Dick, only the best. I know you are creating something here that's going to be a forerunner to an actuality. In the next ten years, we will all be going on weekends to London. They took off in Richmond's single-engine monoplane, a Volte V18 called Lady Peace, overloaded with fuel at Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, bound for Croydon Airport in London. Some 41,000 ping, ping pong balls have been placed on the, in the hollow recesses of wings and fuselage to supposedly allow the plane to float if they had to ditch. The flight was going well until they were 600 miles from landfall when they ran into a bad storm. After battling the weather for four hours and running low on fuel, they were first forced to land at Londulia, South Wales, located 175 miles west of London. They had set a new Atlantic crossing record by making the trip in 18 hours and 36 minutes. On September 14th, after finishing breakfast at 
Merrill and Richmond took off from the hard-packed sands at Southport, England on the return flight. When Rickenbacker made a comment, we're going down to a lower altitude, Richmond, thinking about going down to crash, inadvertently dumped several hundred pounds of 100-octane fuel into the North Atlantic. With less fuel, they were forced down in a soft bog near Musgrave Harbor on the north shore of Newfoundland. Merrill called Rickenbacker from Tobias Abbott's store in Musgrave Harbor and said there were no injuries, but they needed fuel and a new propeller. Rickenbacker flew up in the DC-2 with rescue parts and fuel with pilot Pete Bransom, co-pilot Joe Kelly, and two of Eastern's best mechanics, Johnny McPhail and Jake Newenhaus. They landed at the closest airport, Harbor Grace, on the 15th at 12.30 p.m. After repairs and refueling, the epic flight finally landed back at Floyd Bennett Field in mid-afternoon of the 21st. After landing behind Merrill, Rickenbacker told the crowd, the boys have made an epical flight and they've gotten back without harm to themselves or to the plane. What else can be asked? The New York City mayor remarked, Harry and Dick, not only New York City, but the entire world welcomes two of the most courageous men in this great universe. This is the first time the ocean has been crossed both ways and it took men of courage to do it. Today the world welcomes you and may God bless you. The next morning, Richmond and Merrill decided to sell the ping pong balls for $2 each. Relations between Wickenbacker and Breach began to suffer in 1936 over disagreements on a number of issues, including Rickenbacker's desire to go head-to-head with American and United on the New York to Chicago route. Breach had even denied Rickenbacker's expense report for $820.23 for the Newfoundland rescue mission. Breach played no part in Rickenbacker's $160,000 deal that closed in December with his friend and former Rickenbacker auto customer, Harry P. Williams, for the Waddell Williams Transport Corporation. Rickenbacker's negotiations had taken 15 minutes to convince Williams. The acquisition gave Eastern a route between New Orleans and Houston, Texas, thus opening up Eastern traffic from New York to Texas. As the year 1936 closed, Rickenbacker felt confident about Eastern's future. They had finalized the Waddell-Williams transport deal, took delivery of the first two of ten DC-3s, and grown the payroll to more than 800 employees. He felt generous and gave everyone with a salary of less than $200 per month a Christmas bonus. There was no question that 1936 was a banner year for Eastern. The airline had carried 102,606 passengers, and flew 45,435,175 revenue passenger miles, carrying 1,787,611 pounds of mail. Eastern turned a net profit of $182,534 on $2,573,045 passenger income and 1,250,328 mail revenue. The fact that passenger revenue was twice the airmail revenue was historic and a real credit to Rickenbacker and his management team.
prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. Call Eastern or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. This story was taken from the wings of many. Uh, it's about a family born to fly. The title is Born to Fly. It was written by Dick Borelli. Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. He graduated from high school, then enlisted in the Marine Corps. Eventually, he qualified for the NAVCAD program in Pensacola and became a Marine pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted to fly. He attended college for two years and became a NAVCAD. He was commissioned in the Navy and became a carrier pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted to fly. After graduating from college, he was commissioned and became an Air Force pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. After high school, she entered the Army Warrant Officer Program and became an Army pilot. After she discharged, she became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. She graduated from high school, attended Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and received her degree and the required pilot's licenses. After a short time as a flight instructor and a couple of years as a commuter pilot, she became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. During high school and after graduation, he worked at the local airport in exchange for flying lessons. After he getting his pilot's license, he became a crop duster, building his hours as he got more qualifications. He flew light plane charters and anything else he could build his time and experience, and eventually he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. She was intelligent, beautiful, but had no desire to be a pilot. She loved flying and wanted to be part of it. She lived in a small town and wanted to explore the world. She related well to people, learned quickly, was adventurous, and eventually she became an Eastern flight attendant. Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. He had no desire to become a pilot, but loved travel and adventure. His people's skills were outstanding. He was friendly and outgoing, and he became an Eastern flight attendant. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What inspired us to make the sky our domain? When did any of us look up at the first time and see an airplane and say, that's what I want to do. That's where I belong. The journeys that eventually placed us all in an eastern airplane began in a variety of places, and the paths that led us here were different, but the results were the same. We were Eastern Airlines crew members. From Dick Merrill and Gene Brown flying mail over the mountains at night in open cockpit planes, 
the Boeing 17, B-17 pilots in combat over Europe, Europe, the F-86 pilots in Korea, and the F-4 pilots in Vietnam, the crop dusters, instructors, and commuter pilots from all over the country had the same dream. The sky was in our blood, and we united in the brotherhood of the air. We grew to know and appreciate each other as we learned to love the family that had adopted us, the Eastern family. Eastern Airlines still exist in our memories, in our minds, and our hearts, in our conversations, in our reunions, in our emails, in our souvenirs, in our pictures, and mostly in our enduring friendship. So long as one of us draws a breath, Eastern will never die. Remember, we were pioneers of the modern age of aviation. We transitioned from props to jets, flight at 10,000 feet to flight at 40,000 feet, from dead reckoning to GPS, from eyeball to radar, and from round gauges to EFAS. We have seen and introduced the marvels of design and technology, larger, faster airplanes carrying hundreds and hundreds of people over longer and longer distances, faster and faster and higher and higher. We have seen the near total erosion of the captain's authority and the dumbifying down of cabin service, once so elegant and demanding, that, and that our crews were so justifiably proud. We have seen the reduction of cabin service to the point where flying is no more special than riding a bus. Narrow seats with no leg room, no service, and inadequate open, often dirty lavatories. When was the last time you got a meal or a magazine in flight or a pillow or a blanket or a complimentary drink because of flight delay? There is no longer communication between the cabin and the cockpit. Dispatch now controls the aircraft. There is no longer a pilot in command since no one in the cockpit has the authority to make a decision without approval from the ground. Remember. Remember who we were. Remember what we did. Remember the challenges we faced and the battles we fought. Think back to those nights when we penetrated fronts without the benefit of radar, when we could fly VFR, choose our own route and fuel and alternate. Think back to when the decision to go or not was solely at the discretion of the captain. Hence the title, Pilot in Command. Remember when a crew flew together for an entire month and everyone knew everyone else. Remember when we were all friends. Remember when there was no animosity between the cabin and the cockpit because we were a crew. We were friends. We knew each other's names and we supported each other no matter what. Remember when the entire crew went out to dinner on a layover. Remember. Remember who we were and what we did because, ladies and gentlemen, there will never be anyone like us again. Eastern Airlines exists today in our memories and our hearts, but Eastern will live until the last memory dies. So remember, 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 remember.
more passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. In the April 1933 issue of Eastern Air Transport Newswing newsletter, Eastern talks about many of the cities along the route from New York to Miami. Let's start with the nation's capital. It's an inspiring place for a visit, the title reads. Washington, the capital city of the nation, is one of the most inspiring spots in America to visit. You can sense the power which reposes in the seat of government. The stately marble and granite buildings which house important federal departments or the exquisite monuments to America's great put a stamp upon the city which sets it apart. In arriving from or departing for the north, planes of eastern air transport pass directly over the city, giving air passengers a panoramic view inattainable by surface travelers. There are many points of attraction here, the Capitol, the White House, Treasury, Bureau of Printing and Engraving, the War and Navy Building, and many other buildings of the federal government, and the Smithsonian Institute, the Pan American Building, and similar institutions should be known to every American. Monuments, too, are numerous and impressive. The towering shafts which honor our first president in its utter simplicity is certain to bring the reaction that is a fitting memorial to the honor, greatness, and simplicity of that man. Coal marble was never used more nobly than in the Lincoln Memorial, and one instinctly speaks in a whisper while in the sanctum. Where heroes sleep, across the Potomac on a sloping hill, in Arlington National Cemetery, where thousands of heroes who died in service rest in, eter in eternal sleep. Here, too, is the Shrine of the Unknown Soldier, guarded day and night by marching sentries. Planes operate every hour on the hour between Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York, and regular daily schedules are maintained to Atlanta, Miami, and Intermediate points. Another city that uh, is described in that issue of Newswing is America's Playground is a favorite spot. Atlantic City is famed as America's Playground, an all-year resort visited each year by many thousands of persons. It is a convention city, and rarely is there a week in winter or summer when a national affair of this character is not underway in the great convention hall. Often, a dozen conventions are held simultaneously in the various halls and hotel convention rooms. Social events are numerous and gay. The ocean, of course, is the greatest attraction, and the gleaming white sand of the beach is dotted with sunshades which shelter bathers between dips in the surf. 
Fashionable couples ride the length of the boardwalk in the procession of chairs. Others promenade the wide walkway, while many others gather in hotel observation roofs and in lobbies. There's always something of interest. Now, Richmond is described as the famous old southern capital. Famous old Richmond, resting on its seven hills in the midst of a most historical section, has lived through the centuries as an outstanding American city. Surrounded by its battlefields, its cemeteries for fallen heroes, its past and present greatness, Richmond offers a wealth of material to interest the visitor. You may stand in the church where Patrick Henry made his appeal for liberty or death, or on the same spot where General Grant stood at Cold Harbor and watched 5,000 of his men fall in 20 minutes of battle. You may visit the flourishing downtown section, as modern as any American city, or the fine old colonial homesteads of the suburbs. Richmond is a junction point for three important airways. From here, trunk airlines reach out along the coast to Miami, through the Piedmont Territory to Atlanta, and northward to Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York. And finally... Uh, there's an article about the Golden Isles of Georgia. Georgia's Golden Isles are a chain of six sea islands fringing the Georgia coast. This was the Spanish main of those early days following the discovery of America. And it was on these islands that Blackbeard and his lustful gang and other pirates of days long dead lurked in waiting for passing ships. As long ago as 1567, Spanish friars established their missions here. Two full centuries before the first mission building was erected in California. Numerous ruins of these and other edifices are found on the islands. All of the Golden Isles except one are privately owned. This one, open to the public the year round, is St. Simon's a beautiful spot filled with history as romantic as it is unusual this island is an ideal vacation place sea island beach with its beautiful cloister hotel is a center of social life sports are varied there's fishing tennis archery horseback riding boating and surf bathing an excellent 18 hole golf course is adjacent to the hotel on June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Our next story comes from the book, The Wings of Man, and it could be the story of several of our listeners out there. The uh, article is entitled, A Career in Air Transportation by Vic Catrone, From the Floors to Assistant Station Manager. 
It all started on a rainy day on October 27, 1943, walking across the 90th Street Bridge in East Elmhurst. At the bottom of the road was Eastern Airlines Hangar 8, my new job and the start of a great career in air transportation. I clocked in and reported to Ed Bauer, head of the commissary group, and was immediately involved with cleaning and stocking airplanes. At that time, our entire fleet of aircraft was limited to the old reliable Douglas DC-3, which became my favorite aircraft and still is to this day. My lead was Edwin Barnett, a very low-key, nice person. He almost apologized when he explained that I would be assigned to floors. This meant that all the rugs were swept with a hand brush on hands and knees, and all stains and debris, usually embedded gum, were removed. Eventually, I was assigned various other phases of aircraft cleaning, such as pillows and blankets. This was a lot easier and cleaner than floors. All I had to do was change pillowcases and fold blankets, replacing the blankets if they were dirty or stained, usually by burp. Burp cups were actually cardboard beer containers used by patrons when taking home some tap beer from the local bar. They were located beneath each of the 21 seats in the DC-3. For all this effort, I was paid 50 cents an hour, six days a week. I found out very quickly that our president, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, was a cost-conscious individual, well, you might say cheapskate. I got to know him personally through the years and also worked for a short time with his adopted son, David. After completing service in the U.S. Marine Corps, David eventually managed the ranch Captain Eddie had bought in Texas. After the ranch was donated to the Boy Scouts, David worked in New York as a financial advisor. Life went on and I was soon hated by my fellow workers. You see, I was only 17 years old with working papers and by law could not work past midnight. This meant when I was scheduled to work the midnight shift, I couldn't, so someone else took my place. I could only work the morning and afternoon shifts. In June or July of 1944, I volunteered to work temporarily in Boston. Eastern had been successful in getting this city added to its route structure and was using experienced volunteers from LaGuardia. I was assigned together with Bill Ravy, another commissary clerk. Some of the mechanics also made up the team. One was Red Muehlhauser. Ravy and I rented a room in Brookline and discovered that it was a pretty exclusive area. We soon got the ball rolling, and I was doing things other than cleaning aircraft. I rode brakes while the DC-3 was being towed into the hangar or on the line or to the gate. The hangar we were allowed to use was an old decrepit structure used by Wiggins Air Aircraft. Its width allowed a DC-3 to enter, but with 12 inches of room on each wingtip. We quickly painted guidelines on which to place the wheels of the aircraft as we slowly pushed it in. Yes, I said push. If we towed it in, the tractor and tow bar would be trapped and we would have a deep problem. We only had one tow bar and one tractor. Reporting back to LaGuardia in October and checking with Ed Bauer, I was advised that I would be drafted in December 1944. I returned to LaGuardia and received official notice that I was in the Army now. A strange coincidence, as I got hired by Arthur K. of Eastern Personnel and drafted by the same Arthur K., now head of the draft board. So off I went and served two years seeing combat in the Philippines and a year in the occupation of Japan. Uh, actually, we won the war because of me. 
Upon returning, there was the same Arthur K. to welcome me back. Then the wheels started to spin in earnest, and after many positions and career changes, I spent 42 glorious years with Eastern. After retiring in 1985, I was asked to come back as a consultant and assisted the personnel department in New York Kennedy. This job entailed hiring personnel, counseling those in need, and just enjoying myself in an environment I loved. Because of my air shuttle experience, in 1986, I was asked by Pan Am if I would become a consultant and assist in getting its shuttle service underway. This I did, and with station manager Frank Signor, in 30 days we had a terminal prefabricated and the Pan Am shuttle in operation. This was our greatest accomplishment and the greatest job of my career. I was asked to become a full-time assistant station manager, and of course I took the job. It was only when Delta took over in 1991 that I was forced to retire. Being trained by Eastern to never actually retire, I got a part-time job as a college aide with Suffolk County Community College. I've been there for 18 years and involved with things that Eastern trained me to do, such as attendance control, budgets, work schedules, job assignments, etc. They think I'm great, but I keep telling them I do what a supervisor did in their spare time at Eastern. I have an aerial photograph of LaGuardia over my desk and a picture of myself, Frank Senior, and Charlie Stevens, who at the time was Eastern's air shuttle manager, and I'm thrilled to explain the photo in my career at LaGuardia. Enough for me, I compliment all the volunteers who keep the EARA communications alive. It brings back many fond and some not so fond memories of days gone by. Here's another short story from uh, Vic Catrone's career, career at Eastern called the Eastern Air Shuttle. When John F. Kennedy was a senator, his airplane came into one of our inner gates at New York LaGuardia. At that time of day, late p.m. shift, we were parking aircraft in a manner that would stage him for early morning departures. He had his pilot park his airplane way down toward the building side of the, hangar, of the finger. I was waiting for an inbound, which, if parked as desired, would block JFK's plane until 0700 the next morning. So I approached him, explained the situation, and suggested that he move his airplane or be stuck there until early the next morning. He stared at me, called me an SOB, had his pilot move the airplane to the Marine Terminal, and left in a huff. LBJ and his wife arrived at LaGuardia for a shuttle service to Washington National. He was obviously in no condition to be allowed on board. I advised Mrs. Johnson that I could not let him on. She asked me if I was aware of who he was. I answered that I was, and I did not think he would have appreciated being seen by the public in his condition. She also called me an SOB, then took him to our marine terminal and chartered a private airplane to DCA. Because lots of celebrities and political figures traveled to and from DCA, many things happened on the shuttle. Typical morning in the snack bar would see Hubert Humphrey, Ted Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and so many that I forgot having coffee. I must record that both the Kennedys duck their pastries into their coffee just as we do. Many of the supervisors and managers of that time have made the transition. One still around is Don Perry, still active in Miami's Retiree Club. He, among others, has an air shuttle cart used by the flight attendants to collect fares on board. Let's 
take a plane Laugh at snowstorms and rain To Miami where life is so gay You fly from Boston In the world of passenger travel, progress was also being made by the close of 1934, it was from frost to flowers in just eight hours. This reduction of almost six hours over the old flying time was made possible when 14 new DC-2s, the first of the famous Douglas DC series of aircraft to be used by Eastern, were placed into service. One of the problems that had to be solved in order to attract passengers to the airlines was to develop an airplane on which people would want to travel, an airplane that would be both fast and comfortable. The Douglas DC-2 met this criterion. This next story is called Some Remembrances. It was written by Elva Libby, and it comes from the book The Wings of Many. When travel again became available to civilians after World War II, I experienced my first flight as a passenger on a DC-3. I crouched in sheer terror with my eyes closed for the duration of the flight, vowing never again to board an airplane. The terror remained on tap. My eyes remained closed. However, I did go on to fly in many planes as a stewardess. I stopped crouching and managed to walk upright in the prescribed manner, wearing spectator pump shoes. The only time I regressed to my crouching position was when I fell in and out of the cockpit over the wing spar. The second prescribed manner was the squat, which one had to master to retain a semblance of proximity with the jump seat. The name was due to the ability to jump out from under the precariously perched victim. The next challenge was the hat, which repeatedly fell off because of hitting the ceiling. The solution was quite simple. One merely walked with bowed head. Many times, necessity was taken for humility, for which I received rave reviews. I easily adjusted to walking with one hand on their overhead rack for balance. I can still do it today. You never forget good training. The airport identification symbols were difficult to memorize because they became confused with the table of elements. Three similar jugs on every flight were coffee, oxygen, and fire extinguisher. You had to exert extreme caution to avoid, avoid pouring a cup of oxygen or strapping on a mask of coffee. Viewing traffic lights through the open door to the streets below assured me that door closing had not been mastered. Automobile headlights were excellent guides for landing, especially when no other lights were available. In appreciation for lighting our landings, we often gave the auto owner a tour of the Lockheed Lodestar. They expressed awe by its large size and capacity of 14 passengers. We often used extension and step ladders for mounting and dismounting one's aircraft. On the smaller planes, there were no public address systems. One shouted. When later exposed to the public address systems on the larger planes, many stewards were wary. Some never adapted and continued to shout. Light rain outside always meant heavy rain inside the DC-3. It was like the C-46. The Lodestar were tail draggers and assumed a steep angle when on the ground. Walking front to rear, uphill was exhausting. Running downhill, front to rear, could be so exhilarating that you had to control your speed to prevent one from shooting out of the door. The DC-4 was the first level-floored plane on the ground. We employed the following checklist to assure this attitude. Stewardess to agent, pole up. Agent to stewardess, pole up. Stewardess to captain, 
pole up. The sophisticated equipment and profound checklists were indeed taxing. With the advent of the DC-6, two revolutionary items appeared. Pressurization and a level standing plain sans pole. Additionally, the Convair, DC-6B, DC-7, and Super Constellation, in which I flew, contained these features. A new era had begun. In commemoration of my early years aloft, I bronzed my spectator pumps. Hey, funny face. Hi. Guess what? I'm going out of town tomorrow to the sales conference. Out of town? Can't they send somebody else? No, honey. It's my big idea about the conveyor. Well, can't you send them a letter? Uh-uh. A phone call? Smoke signals? No, honey. It's my idea about the conveyor, and I've got to be there to present it in person. It's a big opportunity. I know. I'm very happy. Got your tickets? Eastern Airlines. When will you be back? Same day, tomorrow night. Oh, you mean you'll be home tomorrow. Yeah, Eastern has a schedule where you go in the morning, come back in the evening. Oh, honey, they're just going to love your idea about the conveyor. I love you. <laughs> Eastern Airlines has same-day return schedules to many cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. Eastern will fly you to your business meeting in the morning, then bring you home for a goodnight kiss. Wherever you want to go, call Eastern and ask. Getting home is half the fun. Come fly with Eastern. This next story is from the book, The Wings of Many. All of us in our working career expected to go to work uh, each day, and we'd just have another day at work. But sometimes that wasn't the case. The title of this story is An Act of Heroism, and it was written by Captain Bill Malone. As one travels up Main Street in Ridgefield, Connecticut, to take Route 116 into North Salem, New York, one soon comes upon the little road of Hunts Lane leading to Hunts Mountain. This tranquil scene gives no hint of the powerful drama that was taking place in the sky above on December the 4th, 1965, or of the sad ending that would follow. Suddenly and without warning, Eastern's Captain Charles White, flying Shuttle Flight 853, found himself without the use of normal controls in his constellation. This after suffering a mid-air collision with the TWA Boeing 707. As the other ship limped into Idlewild Airport with 25 feet of its left wing sheared off, Chuck White and his crew discovered the collision had disabled their ship's hydraulic system. Manual reversion in the Constellation has been compared with trying to steer, holding onto the horns of a bull, and even some of this control was lost as a result of the collision. As the big ship veered off course, Captain Chuck White and his crew, Roger Holt and Darrell Greenaway, were able to level off by alternating the power on the four engines. While experimenting with this limited control, he made an announcement to his passengers to calm and reassure them. The sun was setting, and immediate decision of where to land was urgent. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Captain Charles J. White attended two years at Boise Junior College in Idaho before joining the Air Corps at the outbreak of World War II. He became both an instructor and bomber pilot, flying missions from England and B-24s with the 8th Air Force. After the war, he took part in the Berlin Airlift, carrying supplies to Soviet-blocked Berlin. His military career brought him the Air Medal and two distinguished flying crosses. Now in the twi twilight, he was to call upon all of his past experience to meet the crisis that confronted him, his crew, and his passengers. 
an open area on the slope of Hunts Mountain was located, and the decision to attempt a landing at that location was made. Power was reduced and a glide path established. Then with a burst of power on all four engines, they were able to raise the nose and break the glide. The airplane touched down and began to slide up the hill. As the plane shed its wings, the fuselage split open and almost all of the passengers and crew were able to escape. Captain Joe Hackett of Eastern Airlines was out in his yard at Ridgefield, Connecticut, raking leaves as he heard the Constellation pass overhead and crash on the side of Hunts Mountain. He hurried to the scene. Many of the local residents, the Crockton Falls Fire Department, the town police, ambulance services, physicians, clergy, and the emergency services of the surrounding municipalities rushed to the rescue. Unable to count for all the passengers, Captain White rushed back into the wreckage and located the soldier still strapped in his seat. In this attempt to rescue the U.S. Army private, both were overcome by smoke. Leaking fuel ignited and both were killed along with two other passengers. All, made it to, all others made it to safety. Captain Charles J. White was buried in the Arlington National Cemetery with military honors, and his funeral was attended by a delegation of Eastern Airlines pilots who served as pallbearers. A bronze plaque was unveiled at a dedication ceremony on the Tranquil Hillside at the foot of Hunts Mountain where the event occurred. Attending were Captain Joe Hackett, Captain Helmut Hetz, Captain Don Keckert, and Captain Stan Bader, along with members of the North Salem American Legion Post and local residents. The act of heroism performed by Captain Chuck White will not be forgotten. The airline that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for you. Most of us remember the hijackings from the 1970s and 1980s of commercial airliners. The usual destination was Havana, as directed by a disgruntled hijacker. But did you ever hear the story of an eastern captain that hijacked his own plane? This is the true story, as told by EL, EAL Captain Tom Weir to Jim Holder for publication in the Repartee magazine in the winter of 2010 edition. This happened a long time ago, probably in the early or mid-70s. Seems Tom was the captain on an Eastern DC-9 flight, which was a fairly early departure from one of our Midwest stations nonstop to Miami. They got all loaded up, and just before departure, a problem developed with the airplane. Maintenance was called, and after looking the situation over, they set up a new departure of about 30 minutes late. Tom announced this to the almost full load of passengers who took it in stride and just calmly waited for the flight to depart. Just prior to the revised departure time, the mechanics said they were having some trouble, so extended it by another 30 minutes. Again, Tom announced this to the folks, and again they took it in stride. During his announcement, Tom stated that he appreciated their understanding and assured them that he and his crew would get them to Miami as fast as possible after takeoff. Things were not going well with fixing the broken airplane, 
though, and some of the mechanics set up another revised departure of about two hours further in the morning. Tom got on the PA, invited all of the uh, those who wanted to do the plane to do so, but to remain close by in case we were able to get the problem fixed quicker than expected. Again, the passengers were very understanding, and again, Tom assured them that he would get them to Miami as soon as possible. Later, now approaching noon, the mechanic sadly informed Tom that a new part had to be flown in from Charlotte, as he recalled, and that it would be arrived at about 2 p.m. Now Tom had the unpleasant duty of telling the passengers this. He did the PA both on the airplane and at the gate. However, this time some started grumbling about his, this creeping delay. Again, he reassured them they would get them to Miami uh, that afternoon. Well, the part did arrive, but it was more like 3 o'clock. However, the mechanics were waiting and jumped right on the job with it. A new departure time was set up about an hour later. By this time, all concerned were getting quite weary of this delayed flight and just wanted to get going. So everyone was reboarded in anticipation of blasting off at 4 p.m. However, things did not go well for the maintenance people. While they did not set up another departure time, 4 p.m. came and went, with them still working on the broken bird. Finally, though, it looked like the problem was about fixed, so the lead mechanic came up and started signing off the aircraft logbook. Right then, the gate agent came in with a message for Tom. It was from System Control, who had directed that the passengers be deplaned so Tom and crew could ferry the airplane to another station. Chicago, he recalled. Somehow, the passengers were to be protected on another airline much later that evening. Tom told the agent to call back to system control and tell them that he'd been promising the people all day long that he would get them to Miami and he fully intended to do just that. The agent made a quick call back and returned to say that system control stated the aircraft would be ferried to wherever it was supposed to go. He then gave Tom the dispatch release for the ferry flight. The mechanic finished signing off the logbook and departed. Captain Weir, no longer mild-mannered Tom, now quite angry, got on the PA and told everyone to immediately take their seats as the flight was about to depart from Miami. The agent stood there wide-eyed as Captain Weir wrote something on a piece of paper and handed it to him. As the agent turned to leave, Captain Weir told him, This is Frank Borman's phone number. Call him right now and tell him that Captain Tom Weir was just, has just hijacked his own airplane as last seen heading for Miami. The flight made a quick takeoff and headed south, with many clapping and happy customers. As it climbed out, Tom wondered if it would be his last flight as an eastern captain. Also, he probably would be violated by the FAA as his dispatch release for the passenger flight had expired, and in the event, the official release was for a ferry flight to another airport, certainly not Miami, and he had not even signed it, but he pressed on anyway. Right after they leveled off at cruise altitude, they got a call from Miami Dispatch. Seems Dispatch wanted to confirm that Tom was flying flight such and such to Miami with a certain fuel load and then gave him the new weather reports with the initials of the dispatcher. This was a good sign. Now it was an official eastern passenger flight, so our Tom relaxed a bit and actually started enjoying what he had done. It turned out to be a smooth flight with many nice comments from the passengers 
Seems the flight attendants had found out that they were being hijacked and told the folks all about it. Upon arrival in Miami, they learned that another crew had taken over their sequence, so they were directed by crew schedule to lay over in Miami and deadhead home the next day. Of course, I asked Tom what the consequences were. He said that not a word was ever officially said to him, but he did hear that his actions were met with strong approval by everyone, all the way up to the very, very top, except systems control. And there you have the story from the man that hijacked his own airplane. Over the history of Eastern Airlines, the carrier has had some very important people, celebrities, and other, other famous personalities. Consider this dated back in April of 1933 and printed in the news wing of Eastern Air Transport. Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt made three trips by Eastern Air Transport last month, of which set a precedent. On March 16th, she flew from New York to Washington, the first time the wife of a president had flown while her husband was in office. Several days later, Mrs. Roosevelt, accompanied by Mrs. Henry Morgenthau, Jr., and young Henry Morgenthau III, flew from Washington to New York, and on March 29th, she returned to Washington via Eastern Air Transport. On the return trip, she was accompanied by Mrs. Marion Dickerman, principal of Todd Hunter School, where Mrs. Roosevelt taught. Congressman Fred W. Hartley of New Jersey was a passenger on the Washington trip on the same plane. These three flights made a total of eight for the First Lady in Eastern Air's planes. She previously had flown between Atlanta and Northern Points and on one occasion took a pleasure flight over New York at night. Her secretary, Malvina Thompson Scheider, accompanied her on most of the trips. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet about 15 minutes after broadcast, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's episode one. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, 
why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.